0: I had a lot of niggles. You just worked around them. I had really bad lower back problems. I'd be getting ready to line up in Madison Square Gardens. I remember one time I'm <laughs> getting ready to to run, and my lower back went out. And I looked over at the sidelines, and I saw Jerry O'Reilly, and I said, Jerry, I, I came. I said, I don't know what to do. My my back is out. So I got off the track. Jerry did one of those. I, mean, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be recommending this at home but he, he did one of these bear hugs where he kind of lifted me off the ground if you come from behind you you, you grab somebody in the bear oh hug and, and <laughs> a, a kind of a heimlich maneuver but gave me a bit of a jolt uh, ho- hopefully to reset the back and i ended up getting back on the track and you know the, the race went off and i was somehow i was fine you know
1: marcus o'sullivan is one of the most decorated irish athletes of all time multiple olympic games world indoor goals Wanamaker miles to beat the band a world record that still stands to this day and that's before we even talk about the consistency an ap mccoy level of consistency over an ap mccoy level of years of production i mean 100 sub four minute mile races just like mccoy and his numbers as a jockey we may never see that we won't see that ever again on the track today he is the head track and field coach at his alma mater of Villanova University in Philadelphia a job he's held for almost 25 years a job he was reluctant to take as you'll hear and a job that he struggled with in the early goings. despite winning a national championship in the first season in charge it is all so hard to believe including that he wasn't this star athlete. As a youngster, as a junior athlete, he did not set the world on fire, as you'll hear. It wasn't until this formative year under the wing of local legend, Donny Walsh, after secondary school, while working as a sailmaker in Kinsale, that Marcus O'Sullivan flipped the script and went from an ordinary athlete to scholarship material. This is yet another episode that has been produced through my discussions with the Irishmen Abroad members. A member got in touch with the show and messaged me and said, we need to talk about the greats of Irish sport who don't get talked about as much as they should. He suggested Marcus O'Sullivan as a possible guest. I looked into it and big thanks to another patron, Declan Ryan, who made the introduction. Here we are. If you'd like to become a patron of our show and help us continue to making this series, this is as easy as it is impactful. Uh, A few clicks, a fiver a month, and you will get access to everything, including exclusive content every single week. Big, big interviews, bonus series of the show, two extra episodes each week, and lots, lots more. Of course, you will have the confidence of knowing that you are helping to crowdfund this thing that I started in my bedroom eight years ago. Just download the Patreon app or visit patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad and off you go. For now, enjoy it. It's the Marcus O'Sullivan episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they have learned to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works.
0: I moved over here, and immediately, I had to up my game.
1: I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I Ireland an Irish upbringing. Twenty years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job... Marcus O'Sullivan, it's brilliant to have you on the Irishman abroad at last. We've kind of circled each other for a time to get this locked in. And at one point we were going to specifically do the conversation with Sonia. But it looks like we'll do that on Monday. You and her are connected maybe that's not a a bad place to start for obvious reasons and then less obvious reasons but when you you talked about encountering her to start with and kind of realizing that however focused you thought you were you realized holy moly this is another level of focus and uh, determination
0: yeah well well first of all thanks charlotte for having me on this podcast and I guess with Sonia not here, we can talk about her, you know. <laughs> um, so, no, but I, I actually do refer to that moment in my athletic career very poignantly, I, I, I've, I've actually addressed it a number of times over over the decades, and um, I recollect it uh, with the conversation kind of began with Frank O'Mara uh, from Limerick, who's also world champion. We were in a I, I think we're in a hotel room or we were we're somewhere we used to room together a lot. Hmm. It was a conversation that centered around, Sonia. had kind of just arrived on the scene. She'd been here with us a year. She had worked with Kim McDonald out of London, so we were kind of all regrouping every time races were complete. We would always regroup back in, in London, and um, we'd end up training with her. She would do her own thing, we would do our thing. We would be heading back, and we'd be kind of going, getting ready for dinner, and then Sonia would be saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to the gym right now to lift. And so we're looking at each other. We're going, all right, we're exhausted right now. We're in our early 30s at this stage. And we're thinking, uh, all right, so I guess we, we're going to the gym. <laughs> and, and and out of that prompted conversations that led to the, I guess, the pinnacle conversation was that, Frank, did you think you were this committed? And Frank would look at me and he goes, I, I thought I was committed, but I'm beginning to think I'm not committed, <laughs> not not the level that we need to be. And and I said, well, here's a here's a young girl. She was, you know, she was like she became like a, a younger sister for me as the years went on, and we're kind of we're kind of guarding her in those early days where she arrived in Europe after college at Villanova, and um, we're kind of saying, "Well, this is a girl from my hometown, from Cork. Her dad's name happened to be John O'Sullivan. My dad's name happened to be John O'Sullivan." It was one of those kind of conversations that led into. Uh, A much deeper conversation in terms of what is commitment and I think a lot of times people have this um, Maybe a delusion or at least the illusion of I'm committed. I'm giving it everything I I have and I and I I preach this a lot to my 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 team at phone over when we're um, When we're having conversations you have to look to the right and left of you to make a comparison to see how committed you are Mm. And so therefore we were looking you know, to Sonia. And we started to recheck where our commitment was. Now, at this point in our career, we were we were getting ready to retire. um, We were thinking about retiring. And in actual fact, her arrival, definitely for me, definitely for me, rejuvenated this ideology of you could do a lot more. Mm -hmm. And even in even in the early 30s, to be to be coming to that conclusion seemed a bit late uh, at the day. But I had some schemes going on in terms of trying to do 100 sub four minute miles. I was getting retired and instead I was getting into heart rate training. I was really getting into a whole different area of of enjoying the sport. And consequently, I stayed on for another four five or six years.
1: Yeah, that four or uh, five, six years, Marcus, like that is, you know, when you talk about contemplating retirement, you'd obviously had that discussion at different points throughout your career, whether it was at Colosh the priest re when you're a young lad and being told you're too small and kind of going to hell with that after leaving school and deciding I will give this a go. I'm only doing I'm we're not, not going to breeze through things in this way, but I'm just I've noticed that there's these points throughout your career, whether it was then or after the pen relays, when you're essentially in a state of depression or when you are five years away from hitting that magical 100 mark, but you decide to rinse out another five years of running when it could have just been as easy to go, you know, that, that's me done. Do you identify those points as being any different or on calling on a different part of you each time? Are they completely different or was it the same kind of decision each time?
0: No, they're very they're, no, no. They're 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 very poignant moments. They're, they're, they're what I call crossroads, and I always say destiny is is made up of a critical path, and it's it's being able to choose the right path that's right for you, that can take you to the next level, next step, or wherever it is, whatever destination that you have that appeals to you. And so I, I think I was always attracted to the idea of this ideology that I can do better. How mm. can I do better and I remember giving one of my first interviews and in, was after Madison Square Gardens and somebody asks I uh, was it just it was kind of post post-college time I'm getting on the scene. I'm I'm sort of going undefeated indoors and the the question was poised to me is um, well What made you choose running and I said to be honest, I wasn't even sure Running was going to be it but what I was sure about is that I wanted to be the best at something mm. and it in in, in I've, I've kind of arrived at the, at the at the medium that I've chosen or the medium that I've, that's been bestowed on me, which was athletics. And so at that point, I, I just knew that all I, and I remember even saying, I don't care if it's tiddly winks. I want to be, the, I want to be the best at it. And I want to devote my time to be as good as I possibly can. So I think each, 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 each moment became this Have you arrived at the best? Have you exhausted it? Have Mm. you extracted every ounce of development out of it? And if you haven't, then maybe it's worthwhile staying a little bit more, because who knows what you're going to learn upon upon that time. And and Sonia was one of those one of those last ones that I came across. And it, 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 it went on for another. Probably the most enjoyable part of my career was the last five, six years.
1: And I can't wait to talk about that five, six years, because I think for the average runner, the, you know, the kind of fun runner, uh, park runner, person my kind of age, that might be the most identifiable time in, in your career that we can relate to in the sense of kind of managing what's available rather than being elite, inverted commas. But I want to go to the tiny Marcus O'Sullivan in the little black shorts. So these images keep cropping up when I Google you of you running through fields much smaller than the other boys. But with this, you know, grit and determination on your face, always ahead of the pack. You weren't told that you were in the same vein as Sonia. You weren't in that a group where they were like, Oh, this kid is he's gonna he's got it. He's gonna make it. Your times weren't setting the world alight. But there's something in you at that time, and I heard you reference it with Joe Malloy, that you maybe were running to escape at times. What what do you look back on and think you were escaping?
0: You know it's 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 hard to know we we grew up with very humble means. I think for me there was a, there was there was a couple of things going on there. The first one was, I, I certainly wanted to belong somewhere. Um I was never going to go to college after secondary school. I just just back then, i wasn't I wasn't built for it. I wasn't being prepared for it. And likewise, in running uh, as much as you might see in some of the photographs on my head of the pack, I'm going to get beaten by the time we get to the end of the race. So and another thing happened in tandem with that is I became very comfortable with failure. And so I wasn't one of those young boys that was projected to be this great athlete in time and be succumbing to the pressure by the time you're 18, 19, the expectations. Mm. Uh, and, and then and then experiencing failure and then concluding that maybe I'm, I'm not the person that, that everyone thought I was going to be. I kept, I started from below zero and kind of made my way uh, progressively feeling positive about every minor accomplishment that I was achieving at the time. So I think it built a certain mindset that was growing all the time. And so that helped a lot. But going back to the escapism part of it, I, I think it was my, it was my outlet in terms of, I enjoyed being alone. I actually enjoyed running by myself. But I also enjoyed the group that we had and we had established at that time coming through secondary school it was a great group of guys. And we were able to bond and it was the escape of, of school. It was the escape of home. It was the escape of everything. And I think consequently, it became a salvation in many ways in terms of like it was my it, it, be, it became that place where I could go and feel comfortable, mm. you know.
1: Yeah, like the I'm I'm happy to hear that because you know when somebody says escape the the automatically assum- assumption is that there's some pain there and that there's you know a difficult childhood and like you say people forget exactly how poor Ireland was at that time and to an extent even when I see my own little lad putting on his gear to go and do whatever sports he's doing I I think about even the late 80s that I was uh, taking part in school sports. And, you know, we didn't have next or near that kind of equipment. Were you what were you running in and what was available to you in terms of kind of
0: kit and and stuff there? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, people forget now. I mean, it's, it's been it's been a while. I mean, you've you got to go back 40, 50 years and. Um, but our house, our houses where we lived in Turner's Cross. I mean, the reality of it was there was no heat in those houses when they were established. There was no bath. There was there was a toilet, but there was no bathrooms in those houses. Mm-hmm. And and so you you're on the cusp of a new generation of Ireland beginning out of the seventies. And and whilst we did go through some really downturn in the eighties, there was definitely a class distinction emerging in terms of like people with more, and so that. That was very apparent to me as a kid growing up. So from that, that standpoint, it became very evident that they were the to do people. And there were the people that probably didn't, you know, didn't make as much, didn't do as much. And and, you know, a lot of times when, when people talk about in, uh, social injustice and everything, there, there was a certain feeling of and, and not to put it in that classification, but there was a certain feeling of I'm not them.
1: Mm, yeah. And that those and, things are so for that,
0: us yes, yes. and 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 I, I I think obviously that's still there today. It's still all over the world. But for those, there's a lot more people that have more today than there was back, say, fifty years ago. and there was a there was definitely distinguishing marks to that, where you lived, where you came from, what your father did, did you go to college? Did you not go to college? And so that was very that was very much I was very much aware of all that, and that I wasn't going to ever. Be at that point and so there was this determination in me to do something. I wasn't quite sure what it was but there was certainly a determination in me to, to do something with whatever modest means that I that I had at that time. Uh, but in terms of the running kit, uh, we had a I, I don't know if you remember the, 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 the still them today the gas uh, so you had the, you had the bottle of propane or the gas and you could light the fire in the house and we had one of those. And I remember, I mean, it would rain every second day. So we didn't have a washer dryer in the house. We didn't have a refrigerator. And so consequently, much of the clothes that would be wet on any given day would not be rewashed. They would be just dried in front of a fire. To the point sometimes I would tell, there'd be so much salt built up in it. Some of the clothes would actually start to stand up by themselves. <laughs> have to break it over your knee you
1: know? to put it on.
0: <laughs> you'd have to, to wipe <laughs> it up a little bit before you put it back on. But when I think back on it, gosh, it brings some of the most... Fond memories. I remember one night um, it was pelting down, and Donny Walsh was my mentor that year from Cork, and uh, I, I, I couldn't have been more lucky in life to have stumbled onto Donny. And Donny came by. He came by that night to my house, and he had this oil skin, yellow, you know, like what they were in the North Sea, fishing uh, trawlers. He had one of those on. He knocks at my door. I come to the door and he said, are you running tonight? Said, we would run every night between 8 and 10 o'clock. And I said, well, Tony, it's, geez, it's pouring outside, you know? And, and he said, I'll be back in five minutes for you. Put something on. And that was a pivotal moment during a year where he was taking me under his wing. I'd finished secondary school. I was working as a sailmaker. I was commuting up and down to Kinsale every day and working for North Sales down there at the time. And so I would get home at about five o'clock in the evening. I'd be so exhausted. I'd head to bed till about seven and then after dinner and then I would get up at seven and then I would go to the club and I would train till about 10 o'clock at night. And so there's Donnie standing by the door and I had no option but to say there was a feeling of exhilaration about it too the fact that he actually came to my house and said, I'll be back in five minutes. I'm going to keep running. You change, I'll come back to get you. And we're gonna, go, we're gonna go run. So there was this enormous feeling of destiny taking place. There was this feeling of something's going to happen this year. I just don't know what it's going to be. And by the end of the year, it began to happen. Yeah.
1: When I uh, hear of uh, Donny Walsh, and I have heard you tell this story, and anyone who's familiar with Marx's story will know, you know, as I said, that it didn't appear as if. USA college scholarships were going to arrive when you left school. But this job you take in Kinsale as a sale maker and the teaming up with Donny Walsh, as you say, is a crossroads moment and produces this year. I've heard you reflect as well on how far ahead of the game Donny Walsh was in terms of the methods of training and how he took you from. Well, let's look at it. It was 425 seconds for a mile in secondary school. And yeah. what did he get you to? Four oh five?
0: He got me to three forty seven in the fifteen hundred at the end of the year, which which so if we if we compare it's about four hundred five in the mile. And a national junior championship in the five thousand in one year. The, in one year. And I, I, I would I would always just remember it was I, I like to tell the story particularly when I do technical presentations to people and and I'm trying to explain to them the technical aspects of running. And um, in, in that early 90s fa- phase, I'm going to take a short jump ahead first. In that early 90s phase, two um, big influ- influential factors. One was the Sonia factor, but the other was the Jared Hartman factor. And Jared, Jared Hartman and I, Jared would be hands-on physical therapist, massage therapist out of Limerick. And we were boyhood friends. We reconnected. Jared had gotten into triathlon. Jared sits me down one day. He's working on me at the on the table we're doing some therapy. And he, he got out a pen and a paper and he drew this uh, thing on the back of a napkin. And it was basically all to do with heart rate, all to do with percentages of heart rate, all to do with effort. Now, this is back in the early 90s. Nobody was using this stuff. This was all getting derived and getting pulled out of the triathlete people who were emerging out of the late 70s. And they were finding their way of making it through. So they kind of basically started with a blank canvas. They weren't influenced by the old guard of this is the training we do. This is what we do. And so he said, you just don't get it. There is a part in there if you could figure it out. If you could figure this out, you will get more bang for your buck. I'm, I'm 32 now. I'm getting ready to retire. And so from that conversation, I said, all right, I'll give it a go. I buy a heart rate monitor, I put it on. Now, you're supposed to get tested in a lab. I didn't even get tested, which is God knows how crude a version I was pulling together. I called Frank O'Mara. Frank had just been tested by Giles Warrington in Limerick. And and I said, Frank, what what kind of numbers did you get? And anyone who knows anything about heart rate, you're never going to use somebody else's numbers. So I took his numbers, plugged it in to me and decided to go off and do some of this kind of heart rate training, and at the end of six weeks, I thought it was the most useless type of training that I could have imagined. I almost abandoned it. So explain to uh, people who
1: who who got lost now. When you say heart rate training, now I only know a little bit about this from what Sonia has told me on a on a Tuesday, and <laughs> she's still applying it to me, right? But essentially, it's finding these bands of heart rate at which you need to train at in order to train the anaerobic and the aerobic system, is
0: that correct? Sure, absolutely. Uh, But you have to start with a benchmark. So a lot of times people will just say, well, I'm training at this heart. Where did you get those? Well, I got them out of a book or I did 220 minus my age or I did some kind of Mm -hmm. calculation to come up with it. The real benchmark is what is your maximum effort? What is the maximum heart rate? And then from there you have a benchmark to be able to derive. So I was using Frank's benchmark, which was not the way to go. So I pulled his benchmark, I plugged it in. As it turned out, when I did get tested a year later, we were two heartbeats out. Okay. So our maximums were, and, and it is why the reason it worked. So you talk about serendipity and just being in the right place and using, it just being lucky. This was a very lucky move for me because mm-hmm. I could have abandoned the whole thing. And I remember doing about six weeks of it. And I thought it was absolutely a waste of time. And I jumped into a race down in Philadelphia, and I set a course record after it. I'd never felt so good. I came back to Tom Donnelly. I said, Tom, I don't know what the heck we've discovered here, but I think we should just keep tipping away at this. And that was the beginning of a six-year uh, remainder of a career for me, my personal best in the 1500 came at age, came three years after that. Wow. And I won another world championship after I thought I was going to retire.
1: So before we loop back to Dhoni, you thought it was doing nothing, but it was only when you were put to the pin of your collar and uh, asked to max out that you got
0: to see what was actually happening. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I was just I, I totally that that moment I came back, and there was two, talking with Tom Donnelly, my coach then, and then thinking back, my goodness, 79, the year I left high school, the year Donny would take me up to this tank field, he would call it up in Montanati, and he would have me run around the field, but he would always say, terminology, I want you to stay within yourself, I don't want you to press too hard, I want you to just stay comfortable. He'd come back and he said, no, I want you to jog from this point to this point, nice and easy, short recovery. I'm going to come back and boom off, we're going to go again. I would go home that night and I'm going, how is this going to take me to the next level? <laughs> right. But Donny was a great individual. You'd, you'd, you'd have to go to the Swan Bar to, to meet with him for training he'd, he'd hang out with the the likes of bookies and gamblers and he loved racing he loved the dog track to some nights I'd have to go to the dog track and meet him and we'd go up there we'd watch the dogs and he loved everything that moved and so consequently he had this great intuition about effort and he knew intuitively what it is he wouldn't have been able to write it down and, and convert it to technical explanations but I realized how lucky I was to have met Dhoni at that time, because it made all the difference in that critical point, that crossroads path in the year that I had. So I think a lot of it is, yes, you do come to crossroads, but you have to have some luck. You have to recognize you have to recognize the path. And somehow I believed in Dhoni. I felt comfortable with him. I was totally capitulated to the idea that whatever Donnie's going to give me he's he's I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it wholeheartedly did I have doubts yeah I would have had doubts at times but never never so much that I was questioning it never so much that I was going against the grain and doing my own thing I did what he told me hmm. and years later you look back and you go my goodness how lucky I was to have had mentors such as Donnie along the way to kind of help me and we're still very close today to this day we still we still see each other quite a lot uh, considering I mean,
1: Marcus, it sounds like. Uh it actually kind of sounds like a Disney movie like
0: in some ways. You know? <laughs> no, no, not quite, but, 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 but I, 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 do, I, I do try to help people understand through these stories the doubts that they might go through, the failures that they might go through. And, and it's amazing. Coaching now for 23 years, you, you come across all different sorts of people in terms of mindset resistance to styles of training. They just can't give in. They, they want to do it their own way and, and they waste so much time. And And, and so I, I, I've actually learned to appreciate that not everyone can buy into it. And likewise yeah. with me, yeah. I would not have been a convert that easily. I would, you know, it was a conversation from Jared Hartman. I go back and I frustration of needing to retire because I'm tired. And all of a sudden I said, well, what the heck, let me just try it. And well, all of a sudden, contrary to what you think, a little bit slower in training made all the difference. And and for me at that time, it converts you then, uh, you know.
1: Honestly, we could have renamed the Sonia podcast, Run Within Yourself, <laughs> and yeah. Train For Where You Are, Not Where You Want yeah. To Be. Because that, you know, that kind of, that ethos and that all that, everything that you're talking about there in the heart rate training, all of this stuff has become so uh, prevalent and kind of understood, uh, handed down intelligence now. But you're, you've seen changes take place across that 23 year period. And one of the things you mentioned there is the is the willfulness. As you say, some people aren't ready to convert right away. And when you have talked about in the past the first two years of your time as a coach being really quite miserable and among the toughest of your life, part of that was obviously coming away from being focused on you. And another part of it is, I guess, meeting resistance and seeing that others aren't you. When I, I I'm not really sure what question I'm asking here, but maybe you can tell us about what exactly you believe was taking place during that time, and whether I've I've hit on what the two things were.
0: Yeah, you know, um, there was a there was a couple of things that were going on. First of all, I I worked hard behind the scenes with running Frank Amara and I were very close. We were very we became academically oriented. Some well, he was always academically oriented. His influence kind of helped me. I gone back to do my master for, for a guy who was never going to go to college. I went back, had my master's in my MBA. I went back. I finished my chartered accounting exams. So I then went back and was in the middle of my CFA certified financial analyst exams. And, and I, I had my own path. I had my own I, I idea of what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden, the coaching job arrives through circumstances that were no fault. Well, there were no fault of anybody's but a, a mishap. Hmm. Um, they needed a coach the people I were interviewing with if you will from a financial standpoint were all google-eyed with the idea you can coach my goodness I would coach if I were you <laughs> come back to us later and you can do the finance stuff if it doesn't work out <laughs> so I was getting some what I thought at the time was really good advice so I ended up taking the coaching job and I was, I was low I was low that year we'd actually won a national championship with, with the women's team when I came in um, so we had a lot going for us and and the reason I think you 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 hit it there when you said um, i I'd never felt so much in my life that everyone was just taking athletes take they always need they're very needy emotionally they're they're up and down they and I and I felt this swing before as an athlete I was a taker for all these years I had i, I it became very Evident to me that I took a lot from my family emotionally, from my coaches emotionally, and, and it propped me up to be successful in athletics. And I now was on the other side where I, I started to realize that athletics, at being an athlete is very self-centered, selfish. And being a coach for the first time in my life, I realized, had to be based on this fundamental ideology of selflessness and giving and caring. And I wasn't ready for it, to be honest, at the time, I I really wasn't ready. I also discovered not everyone was as motivated as I was. Now, I've already gone through, you know, the comparison with Sonia and growing through that process. But I also realized that when I looked at a whole team, I just assumed everyone would be driven. Everyone would be motivated. And that's not the case. And I also had to come to terms with the ideology of it. It's okay. It's okay for them not to be as highly motivated as me. And I recognized the fact that with with the motivation that I had came a lot of what I would call dysfunctionality, if you want to, to call it. So I, I started kind of looking at things differently. I started looking at things that it's okay to not be as highly motivated, to have other dreams and aspirations somewhere else that have more of a balance in your life. And I started to learn from being a coach after three years I settled in. And twenty-three years later I, I had no regrets in the path that I that I've chosen.
1: There you have it, the first half of my conversation with Marcus O'Sullivan. You need to hear the second half as we get into the psychology of elite athletes. Can you teach grit? Is the question that I put to him in the second half All athletes are talented. All the ones standing on the line at the World Championships and the Olympics are talented people. But that extra 10% is what we get into. The grit that Marcus O'Sullivan was known for. His thoughts on this and the technology in running right now, the supposed technological doping, is something you'll need to hear if you're a running fan or if you're just a sports fan. Head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. This is the week to do. We're offering a 15% discount on annual membership, so you'll save a few quid while you're at it and you'll be supporting this show. Going forward. I never say going forward, but there it is. I said it. Brian Connolly's on sound. John Marr does the extra research, and Tina and Mikey make it all possible. Come on over this week to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Start enjoying two extra full episodes each week. One with Sonia on the Tuesday and Marion McCown breaking down the happenings in America every Friday in full. You won't regret it. It's patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad.